everybody. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is child abuse survivor and advocate Steve Simpson, author of Teenage and Young Adult Survival Handbook. One in five children in our country has an alcoholic or drug-addicted parent, is the victim of bullying, or is at risk for suicide. Steve Simpson was one of those statistics, a child of severe abuse until he was eventually placed in a foster home, which saved his life. Passionate about educating and inspiring children to become champions of their own destiny, Simpson is one of the nation's leading award-winning child advocates on suicide, runaway, and abuse prevention. The characters he creates in his young adult fiction novels deal with many of these problems children face today. Steve has appeared on Montel Williams, Ricky Lake, NBC, CNN, uh, and many others. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Steve. Thank you for having me. Well, you have... Quite a story, obviously. I'm just going to read something that your publisher sent because this is kind of, uh, it's it, it's really a horrific, um, I guess, uh, verbal abuse that you suffered from. It, it starts out, and, and this is really the first paragraph uh, of the piece that they gave me, uh, God, you're a, a fucking moron. You know that? An absolute waste of human life. God, curse me the day you were born, you little shits. It says, Steve Simpson recalls hearing these exact words. He can even mimic the sound of the voice that screamed them across the kitchen table. So here we are, a child of severe, well, this is severe verbal abuse. Uh, and then you were eventually placed in a foster home. And in short, you say foster care saved your life. So let's start from there. How do you recover from that kind of horrific upbringing? Well, again, and again, to give you a little taste of my childhood. So you heard of an A student, right? What is it, an A student? I've okay. heard of an A student. I was student. a Z student. Okay, I was a Z student. Okay, growing up, I'm talking first, second, third grade. Uh, I was the opposite of an A student. Failed every test. Uh, when the teacher would say, uh, no one can fail this test, every head would turn around and look at me because they knew I would fail. I was always interrupting the class, always making jokes, always uh, getting in fights with students. I was a teacher's nightmare. I used to joke and say, teachers would be willing to give up their tenure just not to have me in the classroom. Okay? Uh, my lowest grade was a negative 20. And you might say, how do you get a negative 20? And very easy. What I used to do is I was always jealous, Captain, of the smart kids in class. Because in my head, if you were smart, you had the perfect home life. I think it was the opposite of me. And I was jealous. I always, again, we're talking grammar school, elementary school. And during the test, about halfway through the test, I'd always try to mess the kid up right on his paper, move their hand, and get them upset. And I was trying and trying with this kid. This kid had a concentration of steel. And I finally got up, got frustrated, and pushed him off his chair. And the teacher said, you. Get back in your seat, and whatever you get, I'm taking off 20 points. And I waved my hands and smiled and said, I'm not going to even take the test then. But instead of a zero, she gave me a negative 20. Um, and this would go, and I was always joking around, always making jokes, always had a crowd around me, okay, but we all know that was negative attention, okay, during lunch and so on. And, and here's the thing. I didn't even try to study. This is the whole thing. I would probably try to spend about twice as long as the average kid did studying trying to figure out how to cheat on my next test. Okay, I was a master of cheating. And my friends would say the obvious question, why don't you just study? It would take half the time. And I would say, what's the use? Because I honestly believed even if I studied, I would still fail. Because I had what's very common, alcoholic homes, low self-esteem or no self-esteem. One example I like to give of a classic example of a child with low self-esteem who thinks he's dumb but isn't is I used to cut school from like third grade on. I got away with it because no one dreamed this young kid was actually just in school. They believed all my excuses. And, uh, but where would I go? I didn't go out doing drugs. I didn't go out to parking lots. I went to the local public library, read books, and I used to walk up to the librarian, and my, my line, I'd smile and say, can I have some paper and a pen or pencil? And they'd smile and give it to me, and I would write short stories, I'd write proses, you know, they'll call proses then, but I'd write proses, poems. Now, here's, here's a picture. This third grader is cutting school, because he thinks he's a failure, he hates school, he thinks he's stupid. But he's going to the library to read and to write and stories and prose that most kids that age would not be doing. And that's like the opinion of a low self-esteem. Uh, I became suicidal from the time I was 11 years old on. And I also stressed I didn't want to die, I just didn't want to live. And people say, well, that's the same thing, and it's not. 
I didn't know it was like being dead. I was 11 years old. However, I did know it was like being alive. And being alive was constant pain, constant drama. Things were never getting better. And that's the key. If I really knew things were going to get better, I would try to kill myself. But I believe, like most in that situation, it's never getting better. And like you pointed at the beginning, I was told that by my father. It's never getting better. And everything's always my fault. Always the guilt. Uh, I, I always say it was my fault he drank. It was my fault that my, my mother and father didn't get along. Everything was always my fault. I remember him being so drunk at one point when he couldn't talk, and he just pointed me. Okay, and that was him saying your fault. Now I was both physically and verbally abused. As far as the physical, it's a horrible thing to live with. Uh, my father had what I call a snap temper. He'd be talking to you like I'm talking to you now. Everything's fine, and out of nowhere, hits you, push you off your seat, start screaming and yelling. Didn't have to have a rhyme or reason. Okay, it depends on how drunk he was. Uh, but more importantly than that, and that was scary because you never know when you're going to get hit, when it's going to stop. But the verbal abuse, as you can see, did far worse damage. Uh, the verbal abuse is what I believe to myself because if you hear it from when you're a small child, you assume it's true. It's almost like a, you say prison of wars get, get brainwashed. Your brainwashed as a child by your own parent. Now, eventually, as again, you said, uh, I did run away off and on, and sometimes I hang out in the boys of the Long Beach Center, hang out in the boardwalk. Uh, eventually, I was put in foster care, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Okay, um, can we stop there? Because I uh, want to even talking about your father, your alcoholic father, and uh, you know, and his okay. his outrage and his and his and the unpredictability. Everything is always unpredictable. What about your mother? Where was she? Well, codependent. I love my mother, and at that time, eventually she did do heroic things. But at that point in time, you know, like most of the codependent and non-alcoholic parents, he always has promises. Things he's going to stop now. He promised he's going to do this. He's going to always the promises he's going to do next time, next time. And unfortunately, as you probably know, the codependent parent just becomes complacent with it. And, and that's what basically happens. And their problems develop, and the whole household gets shook up. You know, I had stepbrothers and sisters, and you know, everything was always a mess. Everyone kind of ran their own way and did their own thing and kind of ran for cover, so to speak, once he came home. You know, it's funny because as much as I quote, it was a love-hate relationship with school. As much as I said I hated school, I hated not being in school. Like when holidays would come up, I dreaded them. Like most kids would want to go home for holidays with their family and their grandparents. Everything's wonderful. With me, all a holiday meant was more time home and he's home or from work, and more time and more of a chance you're going to get abused. Uh, so, again, it's just kind of funny as much as I, I say love-hate relationship because at least school kept me out of that. You know, I used to yeah. dread some of a lot of ways. That's why I was always, from a young age, I was always out of the house, sneaking out, leaving, uh, and, and hence, again, the foster care. Now, one important thing, what, simultaneously, what, just about when I went to foster care, I also joined a self-help group, kind of the one I run now over 30 years. And one of the things I instantly noticed was some of the, quote, smart kids were in that group, and it bewildered me. Um, and here's the, here's the key, was their fathers or mothers, depends on the alcoholic is, usually the father, but not always, would call them the same names he called me. And, you know, failure, stupid, moron, a lot of other four-letter words in between. And I said, I don't get it. How could he say that to you? You're smart. <laughs> I mean, I can see and that was the point, because I discovered if someone else was my father's child, someone else was a son, or maybe he had a daughter instead, he would have said the same thing to him. It's not me, it's the alcoholics. This is what alcoholics say to kids. And at the same exact time period, I was showing some of my writings to the kids, and they were saying, I can't write like that. Why aren't you getting A's in school? And, of course, I would say, well, because I'm dumb. Why do you think you're dumb? Because my father told me, and this is teenager talking to teenager, well, why are you listening to someone that's drunk all the time? Now, I had a, it was, was not overnight. I had to learn how to study. I literally had to teach how to study. Open the book, Steve. You read the chapter. And I'd say those questions will be on the test. Well, eventually I went from failing to passing, passing to doing better, ended up in the honor roll, a year later, the National Junior Honor Society. Join track is just to keep myself busy in school. They said join things in school makes it easier. Okay, got the MVP for the track team that the next year, joined wrestling, a few medals in wrestling. Um, here's the best part. They eventually made me student of the month. I was in the eighth grade at that point. So I hang my picture up on the hall for the whole eighth grade, and he is the student of the month. Be like him. And I laughed at that because that same picture would have been a dartboard in the teacher's faculty room only two years sooner. Uh, could have done it any time in my life. These, quote, smart kids I was picking on, 
I was one of them. Didn't know it. And I always discovered the only difference between a, quote, smart kid and a dumb kid is the smart kid knows he's smart and the dumb kid thinks he's dumb. That sounds real simple, but I've been both. And if you read my mind during both time periods, it's exactly what was in my mind. Um, and it was always self-esteem. Now, my mom, God bless her, had nothing to do with my father eventually, bought, got a house, rented a house right smack where the school district I was at, where the foster home was. I did move back into her. So she did the right thing. She cut all time. She even waived having child support from him just not to have any contact with him, and, uh, which was a bold move on her and just worked her two jobs. Uh, and... I didn't finish school all the way. That was one of my biggest regrets, but it did give me the self-esteem to be successful in business, to be continue writing. And I stress that to anyone listening to this as far as self-esteem or maybe if they're a young person, you know, why is it you think you're dumb? Because some people carry this for their entire lives. I kind of broke that cycle. Well, you have a very positive uh, I mean, you're a talented, obviously a talented writer, a talented guy, and you were eventually able to really, you know, experience who you really were and accept the fact that you were really smart. But were there any times, because, it, you know, as you're describing it, not that it sounds simple, but people, you know, in my experience as a social worker and people who have experienced similar things that you experienced, that kind of abuse is like, they. it takes so long to really believe that I'm a good person and, you know, I deserve to be the A student. Yeah, I'm the A student now, but I'm going to fail tomorrow. I'm going to do just what my father tells, you know, I'm going to be just become just who he says I am. Like, there's always like, I don't know that one step, two steps forward, one step backwards. And like, that's a kind of a, a constant kind of a, um, I, I think something that, that happens. Did, did that happen to you? Well, yeah, there's, there's always that too. And, and of course, there's never, it, it's that, that little voice in back of you, which was your father's voice over the years, telling you still you're still a failure. I look, I, I, in my group that I joined their self-help group, I said there were, quote, smart kids there. But yet some of them were more, tried suicide more times than I thought about it. I mean, they've been valedictorians who've been suicidal. Uh, no, and they put a show on because the teachers are, don't even know what's going on. Uh, so absolutely. And the other thing, too, is, you know, sometimes when you appreciate this as a social worker, and you'll have parents say, well, I separated from the, my abusing spouse, uh, and one child was 12, so I put him in therapy. But my daughter was only five, so I didn't, I didn't put her in therapy. What a horrible mistake that is. Uh, and then all of a sudden, when the daughter gets older, the mom's wondering, why is she getting in all these abusive relationships? I can't figure it out. You know, they always say she's so smart, she's so pretty, she can do better. Well, because she already saw the pattern, and, and she, she thinks this is what happens in a relationship. So I can't stress Steve, enough why do you people think, listen. Why do you think, I wanna, why do you think that, uh, what are the reasons why children themselves won't report abuse? Because I'm listening to you, you know, you suffered for a long time. Uh, you went to the library, and uh, you know that was sort of your way out. But you wouldn't. Why wouldn't you say something to a teacher? Or what, what are the reasons? Well, and actually, two, two two reasons. One you might have heard before, but I'll repeat anyway. One is the fact that because you think you deserved it. I thought I deserved the abuse. I was a horrible person, a horrible student. Everything was always my fault. I took such guilt on in my life that it was always my fault. I joke and say I blame myself for the Kennedy assassination. I wasn't born yet, but that's what I blame myself. Everything was always my fault. Uh, so you think you bought the abuse on you, so why would you put it? You think if you're going to report it, you think the authorities are going to say, well, you're a bad kid. And there's a second reason a lot of people don't talk about, and that's that you also are afraid that usually most abusive homes, sometimes both parents are abusive, but in most of the ones I've encountered, there's the abusing parent and then there's the non-abusing codependent parent, like in my home, okay? And you're afraid that if you report the abusing parent, you're going to get the non-abusing codependent parent in trouble, so because of that, you don't report it. So this is an irony. The child's being abused, and, and the other parent should be reporting it, I agree with you, and, and protecting the child from their abusing spouse, but yet the child protects the non-abusing parent and afraid that she's going to get in trouble too. So for me, that was one of the reasons I would do it, okay, and many also fall into that category. Again, so what would you tell a child who right now, I mean, I know you give lectures, write books, you're all, you're, you know, you are an advocate and a speaker. And uh, what, what do you tell these young children? What, what do you say to them, like, in terms of, like, if they are being abused and they are in elementary school, they're not teenagers, they're not in high school, what should they do? Well, even teenagers, I mean, from elementary straight through to even young adults, what I would say is, number one, you're not going to get that parent in trouble. If anything, you're going to get them help. Because they don't want to throw your mom in jail. They want to get her counseling. They want to set the social work. So then she will also 
not only you stop being abused, your mom would stop being abused. And possibly even the abusing parent. If it's a drinking or drug problem, they could be forced to go to AA or NA, or they could be forced to go to a rehab. So they might even get help. But most of all, I stress them, the parent you're trying to protect, the non-abusing parent, usually the mom, uh, you're not going to get them in trouble. It's the opposite. Another scenario also happens is that sometimes it's not the father. In other words, sometimes the mom leaves the dad, but again, because they're codependent, they get in another relationship. And now it's the stepfather or the moving boyfriend. And they're also an alcoholic or drug addict, and they're also abusive. Uh, number one, it's catastrophic damage to the child, because now there's two adults telling that child all these names. So now the child definitely believes they're a failure, they're horrible, and if they're female, I want to tell you the names they're called. And they believe that because now it's two male images telling me this in my life. Unfortunately, what the child doesn't realize is, you know, both male images are sick people, and these things aren't true. So unfortunately, many codependent parents keep getting in relationship after relationship, it's abusive, but they take their kids along for the ride. So now the kid's even more afraid to get the parent in trouble. But once again, I, t- I tell the young people, your mom will be forced to go to counseling and perhaps get the ability to stop getting in these relationships. So you're helping yourself not get abused, and you're helping your mom get out of these crazy relationships. Uh, I want to reflect one thing also on suicide I mentioned earlier. And this is important for anyone listening to this. Uh, I know many individuals who suicide my volunteer work over the years, myself included. And there's one positive thing I have to mention to individuals, and that's this. Um, they might have had different personalities. They might have different reasons why they were suicidal. Always hopelessness, but whether it's loss, whatever the reason is. But there's one thing in common that everyone has. I don't mean 95%, I mean 100%. For those that thought of suicide but didn't try it, or tried it but thank God lived, every one of them, including myself, were happy they never committed suicide. 100%. Why? Because things always got better. Things always got better. You may not think it gets better. Um, you know, when you're living it like this, like I, I always thought there was a constant clouds over me. Now, sometimes you, you have to make a move yourself if you're in school. Please talk to the school social worker. You know, I always thought, ah, I know what they're going to say. I know what they're going to say. They surprise me. The school social worker or school counselor or school psychologist might know more things than you think they know to tell you. Sometimes they even run self-help groups themselves in the schools today. That's become more frequent. Um, I think one of the problems is with kids is they don't want to be, they're ashamed, they don't want to be identified, they don't want to, you know, kids pointing at them, they're going to the school social worker or they're asking questions. yeah, use a social and by the way, I'll get to my books on that note too that they answer that question. But use a social worker um, knows how to pretty much you know get that in, in secrecy or get them. But another another source is community centers. If there's a local community centers and also churches, that to be a church you belong to. But many churches do have twelve step programs, self help groups, or even outreach programs where this counselors there. So schools, fantastic sources of school. Uh, you'd be pleasantly surprised. Again, how much that social worker knows. Um, and again, churches for 12-step groups, self-help groups as well. Now, just, just an 800 number to throw at you, there's the Natural Suicide Prevention Line, which is 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-TALK. And there's a National Runaway Safe Line, wonderful organization I've dealt with for years, which is 1-800-RUNAWAY, 1-800-RUNAWAY. The Runaway Safe Line would even call someone for you that you're afraid to talk to in your family and give them a message for you. Now, you mentioned something just now about, again, being exposed if you're looking for help. So let's, let's now go to the book. Of course, I have the Teenage and Young Adult Survival Handbook, which covers everything we just talked about, including bullying, uh, again, suicide, self-esteem, being child alcoholics, child abuse, even surviving the holidays in the dysfunctional home. Now, how do you get that in the child's hand? Because you know as well as I do, if any teacher walked in front of a classroom today and said, I have a book, everybody, who here has been abused by the parent? Or whose parent here is a child of an alcoholic? Is anyone thinking of suicide? No one is raising their hand. Even though the average classroom, about a half dozen children fall right into those categories, they're going to sit on their hands. I want to. I probably would have made a joke about it. Now, so how do you get that to those children? Okay, so the Teenage and Young Adult Survival Handbook is inside all four of my novels, and I've written four regular, as you said, fiction novels. There's Runaway, there's Child's Island, there's The World is Wrong, and there's Who Am I? All four action-packed, um, they, uh, they read like a movie would, the young person would see, even an older person would see. Uh, some are science fiction, some are action drama, s- some are adventure. Uh, they all have tons of excitement. The young people like to be entertained. Uh, they're very funny. 
Okay, it's humor that a young person will laugh at. There's young romances in them, cool young romances they'll relate to. And they're relatable characters. Like a reader would say, that's just like me. That's like my brother. That's like my best friend. That's like my girlfriend. Now, the, the cool thing about the books is that it might be a science fiction story. I mean, my characters will battle anything from aliens to hitman to street armies. But as much as they're in fantastic situations... The, the teenagers, the young adults in the books could be children of alcoholics. They might be a runaway. Uh, one's in foster homes. Um, again, they're, they're abused children. So, again, uh, they're, they're real-life kids with real problems in fantastic situations. But each book, again, has a book within a book. Each book contains the young adult survival handbook, a teenage young adult survival handbook. So now it camouflages it. If a young person goes to get one of the books, they can just say, I love science fiction or I love this type of story. And it kind of camouflages that they have the handbook inside or in reverse. Uh, if you've ever tried to get to a young person or even not such a young person who needs help, sometimes you've got to resist them. If you just handed them a book and said all about suicide, all about child abuse, they would probably say, why are you giving this to me? I don't need this. But the fact that it's inserted in a fiction book, you can say, hey, Joe, I know you like these kind of stories. a really cool story. Check it out. Um, and you say a prayer that they read the handbook while they're reading the book. So, again, I've got a lot of compliments on that because it gets the tool and the life saving information to the child without putting them on the spot, putting a spotlight yeah, so on them. So it, it gets the information. Them. They know there's help. They know there's, and, and they can identify with it, but yet they're not, they're not identified as, as a, a kid who's being abused. I kind of want, we don't have that much time left, so I just also want to ask you because you said foster care saved your life. Now, foster care mm-hmm. has a bad rap. People are kids are afraid to go into foster care. You know, foster care, to, I mean, and obviously there are times when it's, it, it's critical, you have to, but you talk about the value in foster care. More than that, it saved your life. Just talk to us Absolutely. a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I was in two foster homes, and both of them I had wonderful experiences, and through them I was in contact with other foster parents in church over the years. I met other foster parents, too. I have to say, I know about the bad raps like everything else, what, what, you know, what, when someone does something bad, the entire category, whether it's a teacher, police officer, the entire category, unfortunately, gets a bad rap. I have to tell you, for me, I had nothing but wonderful experiences in them. They weren't perfect families, but I got to see how when a functional, not a dysfunctional, but a functional parent, parents have an argument, what they don't do, they didn't threaten each other, they didn't get violent with each other, they didn't call each other horrible names. Uh, if they wanted to reprimand a child that wasn't abusive, they would just reprimand them. You know, and just to see how, quote, normal people react in situations was really a healthy thing for me. And, of course, it gave me shelter to get away from the situation, get my mom time to get her own place. Uh, for me, it was a wonderful experience. I know a lot of young people that are extremely happy that were in foster care, you know, and that's the majority. And, again, like every other category, you know, a teacher does something horrible. All those teachers, most teachers are wonderful people. They're trying to do their best and help kids, and the same thing with, again, foster homes. Uh, for me, again, it was not just being taken out of a horrible, abusive environment, but it was, again, seeing how a, a quote, healthy family reacts to each other. And that set a wonderful example for me. And, and I have to say that uh, keep in mind that if a child's in foster care, they're not criminals. It's not juvie. They're there because their parents have problems and, you know, and were deemed unfit to take care of the child. And that's also important, too, because I remember when I went to a school and some parent here told the kid, he's in foster home, he's a bad kid. (laughs) And then she found out I had better grades than her smart son had, and she couldn't figure it out. And she admitted to me, she says, my image of foster kids has just changed. And I explained to her, I said, I'm in here because of my parents. I'm not here because of me. (laughs) You're the poster child for foster care. Yeah, well, I guess it depends who you speak to, but, but there are a lot like me, too, who are out there and successful. They may not talk about it as much. You know, uh, I chose to. I, since I'm 13 years old, I've been speaking to schools and institutions. Obviously, now I kept up my writing with four books out, and, and uh, I just think it's important because you said it earlier. People need to know they're not the only one with these problems. You know, one thing the handbook does accomplish uh, that I have in the book is, you know, I mention all these topics, but I, I, I make sure that they know the reader, I'm not the only one, I'm not by myself, and there's hope, because this guy made it. And, I, and again, in the book, I always re- divert them to a social worker, to a teacher. You know, again, like we discussed before, I have a ton of 800 numbers inside the book, that they can, and the websites, they can get the help, because I know that they can read my thing, the book, they can... 
but they need to get need to go on and get better too. You're not going to just read a book and be cured. It doesn't work that right. way, uh, obviously. Uh, you know, there's Steve, a social worker. I have to interrupt because our half hour is up, and I want to I also because I want to mention the name of the book again. We got literally 45 seconds, but Teenage and Young Adult Survival Handbook. Uh, that's the name of the book. Steve Simpson. He's the author. You can buy it at bookstores everywhere online. Um, terrific book. Great talking to you today. Uh, just Why don't you just give us the website say it, uh, that we can go to? Sure. To yeah, it's yeah. www.powerpublishingcorp.com. Again, it's www.powerpublishingcorp.com. Uh, and the way the trick is, you look, all the books will come up, but if you go to Amazon, like you look up on the names of the main titles, like Who Am I by Steve Simpson. Look up Who Am I by right. Steve Simpson. Because, again, the handbook is hidden there, so that's the way it pops up. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Great information. Well, thank you for having and, me. I hope you yeah, Thank you. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. 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 All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is managing partner of Net Worth Advisory Group and author of 20 Retirement Decisions You Need to Make Right Now is Ray Levitri, CFP. A recent study shows that a staggering majority, 82% of people, are not very confident in their ability to retire comfortably, and one-third aren't confident that they will be able to cover basic living expenses in retirement. There is much more to retiring than simply deciding what to do with the money in your 401k, and certified financial planner Ray Levitri uses his 20 years of experience in the finance industry to share crucial steps we can all take to be better prepared for retirement. Uh, Ray is featured in the Chicago Tribune, Money Magazine, Kiplinger's, and Newsweek. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Ray. That's great to be here, Catherine. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, are we talking about, like, primarily baby boomers? I mean, we have a huge population who are preparing to retire. And apparently, according to you and statistics in your book, uh, we're not really prepared. Uh, so I guess the first question is, why aren't we prepared? How should we be prepared? Which is what, what your book is all about. What are we doing wrong? Um, and, and I think you point out also a lot of people, when they sort of think about retirement, they get kind of uh, depressed. They feel stressed out. They don't feel comfortable about it. Is that because they're not doing the right thing, obviously? 
Yeah, definitely. Well, there's lots of, yeah, lots of questions there. And the book yeah. is written to people that are baby boomers primarily who are um, preparing and maybe have recently retired. So that's kind of that transition 10 years out to a few years into retirement and uh, dealing with all the transition questions. And you brought up one of them, and that is, am I, am, am I going to have enough money? Um, am I on track? What's, you know, what's enough? Um, and, uh, you know, starting to think in that direction anyway. And you say also that people, I mean, I guess there's been a kind of a traditional for- formula that we've practiced in the past or that people should, pra- you know, consider for retirement, but that doesn't work. Can you talk about that, that, that the kind of old way of preparing for retirement isn't really working for the baby boomers because obviously they're living a lot longer than, let's say, the generation before? Yeah, we used to say that you needed to have about, you needed to be able to replace about 70% of your pre-retirement income. That was kind of the general rule, and people used to kind of think in terms of if I have a million dollars, then for sure that's enough. Um, and the answer is that it, it just varies dramatically person to person. And the way somebody could back into it right now is they could say, take your gross income, your spouse and yourself, subtract your taxes, subtract your savings, subtract out anything else that's being withheld from, withheld from your check, and whatever that net amount is, is probably what you're, uh, you know, if you're spending all of it and there's nothing left at the end of the month, that's what you're going to need in retirement. So it's not it maybe necessarily uh, you need to have 70% of your pre-retirement, you know, income to survive. You might need 80 or 90 just depending on your lifestyle. So that's kind of one of those, you know, general formulas that doesn't necessarily work, you know, anymore. Um, so you have to really kind of get into kind of the nitty-gritty and do some analysis. And fortunately, there's just, you know, tons of software on the web. Um, go to any mutual fund company, and they'll have a retirement calculator where you can punch in your actual data and see how you're tracking. And hopefully, when you do that, it'll show, it'll show you that you're tracking, you know, within a range that will, you know, allow you to retire when you want to. But one foot size doesn't fit all, does it? I mean, you specialize in financial security and and financial planning but it, it is, I think you kind of alluded to that it's like unique to each person isn't it or to each individual I mean you really have to, it's not just one overall plan that everybody can follow I mean there's real I guess specific considerations maybe we can talk about some of those yeah in fact and, and, and that brings up a lot of things I mean if you think about it if somebody who has a has been working for 30, 35 years, 40 years, and has a, still has a pension and is going to get Social Security. And, you know, they're not going to need a ton of money in savings, perhaps, to have a, you know, have a great lifestyle in retirement. Whereas somebody who doesn't have a pension, um, maybe their, you know, their spouse doesn't qualify for much of a Social Security benefit. Um, now they're really going to need a big nest egg. And so those two situations, you know, might be people with similar lifestyles, but have a huge, you know, have a big difference in need as far as how big their nest egg should be. Well, I mean, some of the considerations as you talk about in the book, like a person, we'll talk about a man, a male, 65 years old today, can it be expected to live another 19 years uh, versus 11 years in, say, 1970? So that's a huge difference that you have to, to I mean, nice that you can live longer, but uh, you want to live a good lifestyle, obviously. And for women um, who are 65 years old today, they can expect to live another 23 years. Um, but how do you fit in all of that? You don't know how healthy you're, you're going to be, right, necessarily, or right. what's going to happen right. or what catastrophic thing could happen. So how do you prepare, prepare for those kinds of things? Uh, you know, um, I know a lot of people talk about long-term care and uh, you know because so what how do you sort of fit that into the formula yeah great question so what i what i typically do with a with a client and what people can do um uh, on their own or with their advisors is first of all when you run your retirement analysis assume you're going to live even a little bit perhaps even a little bit longer than what you know the statistics show you mentioned you know for a woman um reti- you know 65 now could live another 23 years well it's very likely with medicine and the way things have been going that, you know, she might live 25 years or 26 years. So tack on some extra years um, in your analysis. And then also in the analysis, throw some curveballs at it. You know, what if um, there is a long-term care stay for one of the spouses? You know, could the nest egg handle that? And if the nest egg can't handle that, 
and you know that couple would be you know good candidates to perhaps buy some long-term care insurance through their you know company if it's provided, or perhaps an individual policy if they don't have another option. What okay? Um, that's one example. Uh, you also say that a lot of people, and and I, maybe particularly this generation of baby boomers, they really have a lot of debt. They get themselves, they spend their money. They don't tend to save their money just, uh, you know, over uh, their, uh, before they re- are even considering retiring. You know, they still have mortgages, consumer debt, student loans, all of those kinds of things. So what do you do with that stuff? Yeah, that's, good. that's a great question as well. And so those, those folks probably have to decide, okay, maybe we need to retire. We need to, you know, push retirement off, you know, a year or two or three. Um, or they're simply going to have to learn to live on less if, um, you know, if they're going to have those, you know, I still have a mortgage, let's say, during retirement. But that's probably one of those things that if you're 10 years out um, and you're planning on retirement, um, that's one of those things that I would shoot to the top of the goal list, and that is make sure you have no consumer debt and no mortgage debt the day you retire. Uh, because that being the case, really, you know, you're, you're, your nest egg is not going to need to be near as big um, you know, to cover your expenses and to do so for a lot of years. Another question people ask is, when should I take Social Security? Obviously, that depends on your circumstances, but you say if you can hold out till 70, great, because then you'll have more money's coming in, but it's sort of like a, a gamble, isn't it? Yeah, well, and that's a, that is the, it is the gamble, because if you, if you live past 78, roughly 78, then it's usually better to have waited till you know until seventy to start taking your benefits. If you're looking at you know total lifetime benefits, where am I going to, you know, what, at what level am I going to get the most benefits? Um, you know, taking it early versus taking it late, and at age seventy-eight or beyond, taking it late ends up mathematically giving you the most benefits. So, one thing you're you know one thing you're gambling is will I make it to seventy-eight? And for most people, the answer is probably yes if they're relatively healthy. Um, if they're not, then they might want to consider taking it sooner. Um, the other thing that plays into that is if you start taking Social Security earlier, um, now you might not have to pull as much money out of your nest egg to live on. And so if your nest egg is being managed well and is earning a decent return, that might be another consideration that you say, well, um, I'll tap Social Security and live on it and take out less from my nest egg while I'm, you know, use, while I'm living on my Social Security so I can let my nest egg continue to grow. So there are, yeah, again, you just, you simply have to kind of plug it in to uh, some software and say, let's look at different scenarios and then from there make that, make that call. One of the things, uh, don't invest, which I thought was interesting, that sort of caught my eye because I, I'm not sure I would have thought about this, but you say don't invest too conservatively. And I think sometimes as you get older, you get more, you know, maybe more frightened that you're not going to have enough money. So you tend to invest more conservatively. And you're saying do the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And I think that happens as people get closer to retirement, they get in kind of, they kind of go into worried mode for a moment and pull back on the reins a little bit too much. But if you think of somebody who, as we just said, if you're somebody who's 65, um, a, a man's probably going to live another 19 years, a woman 23 years, that means if they have a portfolio of investments, they've still got some money in there that's not going to be touched for 10, 15, 20 years. And I would, I would categorize money that's not going to be needed for 10 years or more as money that should still be invested in stocks or stock funds. So there's kind of an interesting formula, and it's, it's probably too simplistic, but it gets you in the ballpark. If you take the number 110 minus your age, the result is roughly the amount you should keep in stocks. So 110 minus a, you know, 60 for a 60-year-old would be 50 or 50% in stocks. And so that would be a kind of a general guideline to say, I don't want to be too conservative. You know, 50% in stocks for a 60-year-old would be not being too conservative. What about life insurance? Talk to us about that. Yeah, the life insurance, uh, another question is, if somebody's prepared well for retirement, they likely don't have a life insurance need, meaning you, you buy life insurance so that if something happens to you, there's, you know, there's money um, for your heirs, money to replace your lost income, money to cover funeral expenses, uh, money to cover debt, but if your nest egg can provide an ongoing income to a surviving spouse and if, you're, uh, if you have no debt 
for example, then you essentially get to a point where you have no need for life insurance. So at that point, you could look at the policies you have and say, and again, usually that's somewhere right around retirement, um, look at those policies and say, hey, I, I'm going to get rid of them because I'm, self, I'm self-insured at this point. Or if you're still behind the curveball, maybe you still have a mortgage uh, at that, you know, again, that, that, that would be a situation where you may say, okay, I'll keep these policies going for, you know, at least a few more years or maybe until the mortgage ends, um, something like that. So, again, not a, not a one-size-fits-all, every situation, the, you know, the same strategy. But in general, in an ideal world, you'd have no debt, your nest egg is big enough to cover living expenses, and you would then need no life insurance. Right. One of the things, another thing that, uh, one of the things that you say is that you, and this was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this, but start living like a retiree now. You say taking it a step further, like you have to change your lifestyle. It sounded kind of depressing, downsize your home. (laughs) Read it. I'm going to read everything you said. Reduce your leisure travel, which of course is when everybody has the opportunity to travel leisurely because now you're working, uh, drive more efficient cars, I'm going through the whole thing, and be more frugal. It's not, you waited all this time to like have a good time and to party and to travel, and you're saying, hey, now you have to like live frugally and uh, take a step down. So who wants to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, no one wants to do that, and that, and that actually you know, kind of brings to the surface of the importance of doing some planning, doing some projections, and saying, okay, I have X amount of money in my nest egg. If I spend a certain amount every year from my portfolio, how long will it last? And if the answer is I can spend, you know, you know, I can spend, I can cover all my expenses and have plenty of extra for travel, then, you know, great, you're right on track and do all of those things you've always wanted to do. But if the nest egg's not big enough to do that, then you're going to have to make some adjustments in your lifestyle. And those adjustments would tend to be generally would be, you know, travel and some of the things that people want to do. But what you can do is do a little test, you know, before you get to retirement and say, you know, what is it that we absolutely need? What is it that uh, we, we, you know, we like, but we don't need? Um, and then from there, see if it's livable. And, um, and that will help you determine, again, kind of uh, what that goal should be as far as how much to you know, to, to be shooting for as far as uh, nest egg size and um, how much you're going to need from the nest egg every month during retirement. So you're in the business of advising people. What can you give us? Like, a, I always like to have kind of case examples. Um, you know, I guess maybe as, as a social worker, it's interesting, like to put a face on these. Uh, you know, of all of what we've been talking about. Like, like maybe worst case scenario of someone that you've has, that you've counseled and uh, has been in really bad shape, but perhaps you've been able to help them get out of that so that they are have more responsible retirement plans. Yes, uh, I think if you looked at, um, I, I have, I do have a full spectrum of clients from clients that made very, you know, maybe very little money while they were working, um, and and clients that you know made a lot of money, and those that were real prepared and not not so much. Um, so, and I'm just thinking of a particular client um, worked as a receptionist for 40 years, had a small nest egg, um, and as far as her retirement, we've simply done really the same thing we do with clients that have big portfolios, and that is we've taken the nest egg and said, if we want this nest egg to last for the next 25 years, um, how much are you going to be able to take out of it every month? And in her case, it ends up being that she can take out about 1000 a month. That 1000 a month is added to her Social Security, which is about 2500 a month. And that 3500 a month... Um, and a small, you know, couple hundred dollar pension is what sustains her. So she's had to make her lifestyle fit that cash flow. And that's kind of what, what I'm talking about in, in, you know, respect to, you know, what you may want to do everything, but your, your nest egg is only going to allow you to do so much. Yeah, so there's obviously certain limitations. Okay, that's one example. Give us another example of a different kind of client. Yeah, so on the other end of the spectrum, you would have someone who needs, say, uh, you know, 150000 a year to cover their expenses. Um, again, the same, we, use, we do the, the same analysis, you know, how big is your nest egg, what are your income sources, 
I'm thinking of someone who has you know rental properties. They have a pension. They have a nest. They have a nest egg for you know IRAs, 401ks, and from all of those sources, they can sustain themselves at that 150,000 mark. And in that case, it's we're getting Social Security, we're getting a little bit of pension, and we're taking the balance from our portfolio. But our portfolio is very large, so we can take you know over 100,000 out a year and not ever run out. And so, again, it comes back to that planning. Let's take your situation, let's plug it in, and let's see um, what the outcome is. And then let's throw curveballs at your situation and see how it would handle, say, lower return, longer life expectancy, um, you know, nursing home somewhere along the way. Um, you know, what if you did want to take trips the first, you know, 10 years of retirement when you're healthy and it's going to cost an extra 10000 a year? Let's look at all those scenarios and let's see what the outcomes are. And looking at all of that will tell us what's possible for, you know, for each, each individual. And I think also, I, well, I guess I have two questions, but sometimes, you know, the baby boomers are the sandwich generation, and you're talking about those curveballs. They end up having their grown kids living with them after they, even after they've retired, or an elderly parent. And so don't you have to include them or in the plan in terms of family planning? Yeah, absolutely. And, and those will be other things you would look at. Uh, and we've had to, you know, we've had to do that with clients as well. And that is, hey, we have a, you know, an elderly parent living with us. They're going to probably be with us for four or five years. You know, we, we estimate they're costing us an extra so much of, you know, a month. And we put that into the analysis and just calculate that in to make sure that we're, again, when we withdraw from the portfolio, we're not taking out too much. Um, in the case of the, the kids, that's another question, and, I, and I'm fairly opinionated on that one, and that is that, um, yeah, definitely don't, 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 <laughs> don't enable the, the kids. Yeah. They shouldn't be living in the basement. You could give them a timeline and get them out of there and um, let them go, you know, figure it out on their own so that they learn the life skills and not learn to continue relying on mom and dad. I have those situations, too, where parents come in and say, our kids are living in our rental properties or in our um, and or at our, in our basements, and uh, they have their now they have kids, so now there's grandkids involved, and grandma can't tell the grandkids, you know, can't can't tell the kids to get out because that'll affect the grandkids, and it's just this kind of big nightmare. But they they always complain about it, and yeah. so it's like, wait a second, you're making it, uh, you're making this possible because you won't say no. So there needs to be some tough love in some situations. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, we're sort of, we have a few more minutes left, but uh, I was just thinking about, I mean, the attitude of baby boomers. So, have you found that the attitude of, I mean, you've been in the business, what, 20 years, but the attitude of baby boomers is different than, say, the previous generation. I mean, to get them to be able to sit down and, I mean, and, and to, I mean, I have many friends who just don't want to think about it or talk about it or even consider it because it's sort of like a, a different generation. They want to, have fun, do what they want to do, and sort of put this off, this like this postponing of, of doing this retirement, of planning for retirement, not even wanting to think about it. Yeah, that, it's kind of that avoiding that reality slap is pretty common, I think. And I think the reason, I mean, and then studies and statistics kind of bear it out, and that is that the average, you know, the average uh, uh, 65 or old, older American has less than $50,000 in their nest egg outside of their house. So they're not prepared, and consequently, you know, I don't want to be told I'm not prepared. Um, so I just keep kind of doing what I've always done. Um, and you could have more out of, out of life, out of retirement, by doing some planning, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just going to say, there's, I found a great study, and I actually found several studies when I was writing my book that showed that, that people with financial plans had, have twice as much money as people without plans. So one of the things, if you simply wanted to say, hey, I want to have more money 10 or 20 years from now, whether I'm at retirement or before retirement, it would make sense to do some planning and kind of look at every aspect of your financial life and say, here's where I am, here's where I want to be, and set out you know, a strategy to get from point A to point B. Yeah, so that's a real selling point, obviously. If you're going to have twice as much money, that, that certainly would get people involved. You have to make it real, I guess, is, is, is what you're saying, right? You have to um, – it's, it's the same thing, I think, uh, planning for 
healthcare. People don't want to talk about that either. And um, I mean, that's another big issue. It's also included in this retirement stuff. But um, so what would you say? Um, I mean, how do you, I guess what I'm asking you, because I'm a social worker, but do you, like when you, you're with your clients, do you get them to stick to it usually? I mean, do you follow through? What, I mean, how does that work? Yeah, that's, that's a great question about, I think, a, a good question about um, finding an advisor, actually, because my suggestion to people would be to go find a certified financial planner who's been in the business for at least 10 years, who's not commission-based, and then who develops a financial plan for them, and then has a process for meeting and reviewing that plan consistently. And so... In our case, what we do is we do the plan for clients up front when we meet with them, when we start meeting with them. And then every six months, we bring them back in. We review the plan, review the investments, make tweaks. But the idea is they always know where they stand in relation to their goals. And because we're always revisiting that, um, ultimately what happens over time is they, they just have that you know, the peace of mind that we're hoping they have at retirement. And that is, uh, I know I'm on track. I know what to expect. Um, and consequently, I don't have to worry. And I, I tell my clients that if, if you don't, you know, if between these semi-annual reviews, if you don't have to worry about your money or think about your money, then I've done a good job. And I think from um, the standpoint of somebody maybe perhaps looking for an advisor, that those would be things you'd want to shop for in your, you know, in your areas. Advisors that will do a plan for you, will meet with you consistently to review the plan, and, um, and of course, hopefully you find somebody that's got experience working with people in your demographic. Well, I guess we could call you a finan- maybe a financial therapist, thinking of you as, as, as a <laughs> job you do. You have to, yes, you know, it's therapy. You've got to do it. Um, and you will be healthier uh, mentally and uh, financially. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, so I, I want to... Uh, mention the book again, obviously 20 retirement decisions you need to make right now. Um, we've, I've been talking to Lay, Ray Levitra, CFP, Managing Partner of Net Worth Advisory Group. Uh, Ray, just give us a website we can go to to um, find out more about you and also we can buy the book, Amazon.com, stores everywhere. Okay, yeah. Uh, our website is networthadvice.com. If you want to find out more about me or my firm, and yeah, you can get the book at Amazon.com or at bookstores. And um, uh, the, the revised revision is is out, and so I have to revise it every three, four, five years. And uh, we just went through that process, so it's ready ready to roll again. Great, great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com.